Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. The last generation or two has brought to our communities a new problem. We have so many people who are living longer and who now force us to redefine how we are going to approach, how we're going to manage and take care of this very large number of people who are not working, they may have lingering or new illnesses, and sometimes they need full-time care. Mindy Rosenblum is a psychiatrist in Rhode Island who has agreed to discuss these issues with us. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin with an overall picture. How is the shift to a larger, older population affecting our communities? I'm going to start with a positive spin, that there's a lot of wisdom to share. And so I am finding that 65, 75, 80 and above, when I was growing up, were viewed as retired and not able to contribute. And what I'm finding in my own community on the positive spin is they have become mentors in some ways and giving back by volunteering in a school, doing some reading, or if their business had been successful, doing consulting to new businesses. Some who are quite healthy and vigorous will volunteer at a meal site or at a transport for a daycare. So I think that's the positive spin. They're giving back to their communities the negative potential is that those who are not vigorous, and sometimes this hits before age 65, are requiring a lot of care, and it's affecting the population of my generation who are finding it hard to balance their personal and social and career lives while trying to take care and do what's right for their aging parents and relatives. Do a lot of people in our society properly prepare for their older ages? I think there's a lot of denial, and then all of a sudden we wake up and changes have started to happen. So from a health point of view, I think we're getting a lot of warnings or yellow flashing lights for smoking or for drinking or for inactive or there's things in our diet that aren't healthy to do it now so that as we get older, there is data to support that there'll be less illness burden. But I think a lot of people, just as we find with everything, have set patterns and they've been successful so far and they've been able to function so far and then therefore they just one day find that they're not able to see as well but hadn't been going to the doctor are not able to walk as well but we're fearful of going whether it's the expense or time out of work or being seen as right now you don't want to be seen as sick at work and there's so much what's felt to be age discrimination if you're 58 years old and you're seen as old or disabled or needing a lot of medical time for appointments, you're fearful you're going to lose your job. One of the other problems is that, well, for example, you live in Rhode Island, I live in Florida. Kids tend to live away from their parents, so no one's monitoring the parents. If they get sick, if things become complicated, it's managing from afar, so we lose that family connection. Do you see that much up in the Rhode Island area as well? I do see it here as well. I will get phone calls from Pennsylvania and states away about the parent. It's become clear to them from afar when they didn't recall a birthday or they wrote a check wrong or they didn't pay a certain bill and they somehow found out that the parent is failing, yet it's not feasible to be there every week or every month or even sometimes once a year. And major crises are occurring and they're trying to coordinate care from afar It's been to the detriment of mental health of the child, but certainly to the day-to-day functioning of the parent. They might end up in a higher level of care, assisted living, or potentially even a nursing home, only because they're not available to coordinate something locally. 
And that could have a very negative impact on what might eventually be my patient, the geriatric patient. It introduces the fear of a lot of isolation and loneliness in the elderly as well. They're just scared. They're scared. They don't know who to reach out to. They don't want to be a quote-unquote burden to other people. Yet one of the most successful elements of aging is having a good support group. And so if we're looking out, you know, depending on what age group you're at, but one good strategy at all times is, you know, we all want to have friends and neighbors and a sense of community, but to have a wide range of friends and contacts. Because unfortunately, there have been patients of mine that have successfully aged into, let's say, their late 90s, but they're finding that, unfortunately, siblings and peers have passed. Unfortunately, it's even said that they might have even, the worst case scenario, lost even a child, and they don't have someone to turn to. So in our life, we should try to always have like a posse, like the celebrities, but of truly good people in our lives of a variety of age groups because we get a lot of, as I said earlier, wisdom, and we have a lot of nice experience, and if our temperament is good, we can attract peers and friends of younger age groups, and they can be there for us just as we've been there for them now. And one of the groups that has traditionally been for people is when we lived in tight communities and there was a strong religious connection. And I'm not saying that religion works for everyone. Everyone has their own flavor on this. But it seems that the religious or spiritual connectiveness that it gave to a person, is it's just not as strong as it used to be. Do you find that as well? I find that it's either there or not there. So a good example would be something like AA, which has a spiritual basis. And some people will yay or nay it immediately when that's pointed out. You know, some know right away. And then I'll explain that spirituality doesn't necessarily mean this religion or that, but a sense of connection. There are individuals where their religious connection goes beyond just support. It actually could be a key factor in their recuperation or healing from a variety of ailments. A diagnosis like a substance abuse could be one, but it could be a depression or a bereavement where the spiritual community can be so important. So a day like today we should recognize is Easter and just so happens to be falling on Passover and maybe there are other cultures celebrating. And so one way to combat loneliness is if you participate in your faith, people are at Mass today, I'd assume, or they might be celebrating at an Easter egg hunt so that even if you lived alone or you had loss, you could make a connection but also the community, because you've been involved, might reach out to you if they don't see you participating in a Bible study or something else. What's up? I haven't seen Mary. Let's reach out to her. Let's see, does she need a ride? That might be as simple as all. It's a very interesting point, as I'm thinking, because most of the time when people are in hospitals or especially in hospices, they make a very significant role to bring a clergyman in, if a clergy person, I should say, in if indeed the person wants that. But most of the time, my off, I, I want to say this as accurately as I can, but I think probably the bulk of mental health people when they see a patient in their office don't inquire about this whole aspect of a person's existence, the religious and spiritual notion. So this brings up a broader picture of depending on our training and our natural inclination, we're going to focus on different areas. Some of us might always ask a religion background, how spiritual you are, and have a couple of questions. And there are set questionnaires, and maybe you've gone to a seminar or you happen to go to a grand rounds on it. There was someone, a, a wonderful psychiatrist in our community, Irving Rosen, and there's a memorial lecture every year about spirituality and, and the important role and that's branched even into empathy and other things that your spirituality can bring. On the other hand, if your background had a lot of 
substance abuse, you might spend much more time delving into that or issues around sexuality. So I think it does have to do with our training and then our own experience. Someone's in a crisis, such as they're feeling suicidal or they're having issues with substance abuse and intoxication or potentially withdrawal, or they're in a major depression or going through, let's say, a divorce. Those might be natural times where I will suggest it. But on an initial interview, and we're so aware of having to get so much medical information in, and we don't always get to do it, and it can be a key element. So that might be where it's important because this could be helpful in your treatment down the road. I might be able to incorporate elements of this that might assist you. And if not, that's fine. There's, there's other areas. So there almost has to be a menu of different types of supports and tools. And one of them certainly should be your spiritual or religious side, if that was there. There were people that will share with me that they don't participate formally, but they might use prayer on their own. And there was someone just recently in my office where she lost her daddy, and there were some difficult issues leading up to it. And some very religious friends reached out with books and readings and prayers for her, and she said that there was a time in her life where that would be meaningful. It hadn't been, but she's going to take another look. So I actually looked at the little booklet she brought in, and they were, it was like cognitive therapy. It was like positive thoughts. And I said, you know, maybe on a given day or at this time, if you left out, if you removed three or four words here, you would still find it a very meaningful passage. So it's something we have to at least put on the list. But it, it touches also on the big question. We tend not to think that much that the elderly, our grandparents, have mental health needs. That's wrong, isn't it? Everyone could have a mental health need, and I don't mean it in a negative way. There are some issues that have gone under the wire that the person has functioned. So a lot of times people say, I've had this, but I always functioned. Or because of our grandparents' generation, or for some of us, our parents' generation, that it was one of those things we whispered about, that, you know, having a mental health issue or a depression or a substance issue that people just whispered about. And so they spent their entire lifetimes feeling it's something that they can't be open about. And so if they moved to a new community, let's say they came from Rhode Island, they're a snowbird, and went to Florida, it's probably not something they're going to bring out when they're trying to make friends with the clubhouse or at the tennis court. Sometimes if someone does share, then they will open up and share. But I think most people have been quiet about their histories and their treatment. And then I think access to care has become more difficult. There may not be enough clinicians or enough that accept Medicare, or it's a very brief visit. And so they're going to their primary care doctor who's focusing on their blood sugar that might be borderline high or their high blood pressure or some other issue. And there isn't sufficient time in the primary care arena to delve into even basic questionings, which we know can really have an impact on their functional as well as emotional health. And two examples are this quiet epidemic of substance abuse in the elderly, which is much bigger than people realize. And the old other notion is the decline in cognitive functions, but sometimes that's not a dementia as much as what we used to call, or still call, a pseudo-dementia. It's more the product of depression than a dementia. So we might be missing things here. How big a problem is substance abuse? Let's start with that one. How big a problem? I think that it's a much, it's kind of like you would say maybe like a quiet epidemic. Because number one, it could have been a pattern that the person had their whole life, and now it's catching up to them where their nutrition is failing and they're having vitamin deficiencies on top of the direct toxicity of the alcohol, or it could have been a small amount. We're seeing a ties with women who've had greater than seven drinks a week with now having a breast cancer, or 
they might now be developing the pulmonary problems that they hadn't developed earlier and they're needing to stop, or it starts when they've lost a partner or a spouse or a job, and it's a way of kind of filling time. They had always socialized that way, and there's alcohol in the house, and they don't start to notice that they're drinking a little bit more and a little bit more because we do naturally develop a tolerance for whatever level it is, except the body can't handle that alcohol level anymore. Again, due to the direct effect on our organs, and for us as psychiatrists, the brain would be critical, but also it could affect their heart or other organ systems. And they sometimes feel like, it. what's the difference now if I stop? The concern is I've seen people with conditions, they don't share with the doctor, and they're needing to go on medications that would be an issue, that are also metabolized through the liver. So I find that that's something you absolutely have to be open about, not just asking, but getting a quantification, getting a release of information to coordinate with the medical providers to make sure either, A, they know of the past history or some recent lab work to show their liver functions, but there's other signs in the body of chronic alcoholism and acute alcoholism And that's where the coordination of care in every age group, but particularly as we get older, is so important. It brings up the point, too, that a lot of these people might live alone and no one actually goes into their apartments to see if they have liquor there, which if a child lived down the road might occasionally go into the apartment and say, "Uh uh-oh, we have a problem. Right, or neighbors. You know, now a lot of times people live in communities where the neighbors aren't going into each other's homes. So you had started out our conversation talking about the tight-knit community. And there were nieces and this one and neighbors and everyone was enmeshed. And when I was at the mental health center, we did have case managers who could go in a home and they could look around and see what's going on. One thing that I do see happening is that there's delivery. So just like there's delivery of medicines, you could get delivery of the alcohol to the home. So you could be getting older and not want to drive at night because your vision's not as good, or you might have a neuropathy and you don't want to drive, you don't feel the pedal as well, but you can get alcohol delivered and no one's monitoring how much that person is getting. This is an example of things working out, but there's a patient, he's in his 90s now, that his daughter had made a connection through the nurse practitioner in the internist office in town. He now has some diabetes, his vision is quite poor, His gait isn't stable and he's falling down, but he had been drinking alcohol for decades and decades. Part of it he saw as a self-medication for his severe social anxiety and depression. Now there's respiratory issues, there's gait issues, there's serious vision issues, and the alcohol was just the straw that broke the camel's back. And after he fell a few times, he came to the radar of the medical community. And the daughter who was out of town had made the connection, and luckily I found a way, and I think that's the key challenge with our older population, is to find a connection and some credibility and showing that you're on their side. You have some support for all their positive in their life to date and what they, the value that they still have, but that there is a benefit in making change, and they can make change and, and support them in the change. In this nice story... The daughter befriended a neighbor who had been quite good to him, and all the neighbors do rally. We've had some storms and things, and one of them said, I'll even carry you to my house. We had a storm recently where we didn't have heat as a result. He was going to carry the gentleman there, you know, even if he couldn't walk to come over. The daughter rallied the neighbors. The neighbors themselves happened to be unique, and the daughter now has bought a little home 
there to be able to visit for some long weekend. She lives in maybe six, eight hours away. But that's a best-case scenario. But in the beginning, before all this, he was getting delivery of alcohol on a regular basis. And no one's watching his account. When appropriate, there are psychiatric nurses that can go in the home. A lot of agencies, religious groups will reach out into the home, and they give us invaluable information. Sometimes families are not good families from the get-go. Mm. And so now someone is in their 80s and 90s, and they're becoming obstinate, and you're seeing the bad side of them coming out, and there's no one there to really help. We're stuck. We're really stuck. Again, it's the lack of the community. Sometimes the state actually has to get involved to take care of these people. It's very difficult. The spinoff of this sometimes, and this is where I'm headed with the question, is there seems to be a request that psychiatrists get involved and treat these people with medications. How safe, how much sophistication is needed to use the psychiatric medications in an older person? There can be a lot of safety. So if there's no substance involved and it's a medication that goes through, let's say, the liver and their liver function is still good or, or fairly adequate, it's, but if there's a depression or anxiety, we usually the logo is usually start low and go slow. There is data, although a lot of the trials are done in individuals 18 to 65 years old, there are agents that we use. We, of course, have to know there are other medications in terms of drug interactions, and there might be levels that need to be checked or some baseline blood work. But I think for most diagnoses, we do have choices. It's just a matter of getting to know the individual, not make a rash decision, and make the right diagnosis. Let's say that it is actually a substance abuse diagnosis. Again, we have to get baseline physical and laboratory data. I would always advocate for some group support, individual support. It's voluntary unless they're really at risk. So like we mentioned, people coming in the home, the individual could have the right to say, I don't want you to come in. I've treated children of older adults where they don't want to let them in. And we have to come up with strategies. Who might they let in? How might they let in? You know, what type of a service? What can they come out for? But from a medication point of view, depending on the diagnosis and the proper collaboration of getting a full list, not just of prescription, but also over-the-counter remedies to get a better handle. And that's where we need the honesty about if someone is drinking, not necessarily chastising them, but just having them come forward with that. We need to know right away how much alcohol that individual is drinking. Absolutely. A very nice person came in here and said, when should a psychiatrist treat dementia and when should a neurologist treat dementia? What's the difference? I'd love to hear Interesting. you. I think that we could work in collaboration. So I think whoever identifies it first, and again, if you're a geriatric psychiatrist, you should at least know the basic workup. And so my rule of thumb is let's get some basics going. And we can learn a lot, as many of you might know, about just drawing the clock and coming up with the hands on the clock. And there's some very basic questions that we could ask of the individual and the family. And so just spending time and asking some basic questions and, and basic screeners could be helpful. There's basic blood work for treatable causes because, again, they're not coming in because they think they're demented. They're coming in because they've been forgetful or got lost or made a lot of mistakes on something or neglected to do something. So at first, we, if we get the patient anxious, they're going to perform worse. So we always screen for treatable physical causes but also mental health causes. My rule of thumb is when I'm starting to see things that are quite abnormal on the screeners, whether it's a lab 
or some type of another scan or even paperwork, I do ask for collaboration. Then what I find is once we get the proper diagnosis, if it's pseudo-dementia and it turns out to be primarily a depression and just feeling like I can't and I won't, so they don't do something only because they think they're not going to be successful at it or get it wrong, that's a lot different than someone who is confabulating or thinks it's 1941. So when we figure it out, we should have good collaborating neurologists who have expertise here. In the long run, once the systems are in place, whether it's pharmacology or day treatment or extra supports in the home, I have had patients, particularly as the illness progresses, where it's hard for the individual to get out to a lot of appointments and nothing seems to change every three or six months when they're seeing the neurologist, where I might be the prescriber for a depression and the individual happens to be on some, uh, let's say, Namenda and Exelon, and I might maintain that. So I do check with the neurologist, and certainly they would still have a primary care provider who could be quite adequate in treating and monitoring that. So we have the medical community now, which has to reflect what should be the social, religious, family, and environmental community. And when you put it all together, we have a pretty good chance of at least giving these folks some quality of life. I think it's fascinating. I think if there's collaboration between the patient, the family, the community, and the medical community in a broad variety of players, including occupational, physical therapists, the whole gamut, nursing, outreach workers, our quality of lives could be enhanced well decades beyond where we thought. But starting early and looking at our health will make a big difference. Very interesting. Mindy Rosenblum is a geriatric psychiatrist in Rhode Island, and she has graciously given us some time to look at some of the many issues, important issues, that are associated with taking care of our aging population, which if we just wait a little bit, as we know when we get older, it will come to us as well. Dr. Rosenblum, thank you so much. Thank you for including me in this important topic.